I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney, for NPR Illinois Community Voices, and for the Front Row Network. My name is Craig. I'm your host. I'm joined today with my co-host, Brett Rutherford. Hello. And also Vanessa Ferguson. Hey there. This is the second part of our interview with Jeff Curdy. And if you listened last week, you know that this man knows Walt Disney inside and out. And uh, just a fun conversation we were able to have with him. And so excited to bring you the second half of that today. Before we do, thoughts on uh, this part of the interview going into it, Vanessa? I'm just really excited to hear what more he has to say. He's such a great storyteller and he's just a wealth of information. There's going to be good stuff in there for sure. And Brett? Ooh, I have some really good questions for the second half. I am <laughs> teasing you. Here's the second part of our interview with Jeff Curdy. Vanessa has a question about Imagineering, and I think that that might have been your start with the Walt Disney Company, but of course you can tell us if we're wrong there, Uh, but Vanessa, (laughs) what's your question? Well, um, you know, you knew so much about Disney, Uh, you're the expert, but, and you also know what it's like to work for Disney, I think it's all of our dreams in the back of our minds, but (laughs) we wanted to ask you, what was it like uh, maybe working on the Euro Disney project, and do you have any favorite memories um, or experiences from Imagineering? I came into, this is so funny, I came into Disney through the side door, basically. Where's the um, side door? Yeah, <laughs> we'd all like to know that. Can we Google I, images that or map it? Or something? <laughs> I, I spent my youth desiring to work at Disney. Uh, and I tried and I tried and I tried. And I knocked on the front door and I slipped resumes underneath it and applied and reapplied and applied again, couldn't, couldn't get hired. So I said, ah, to heck with it. And a guy I knew called and said, they're doing a big arts festival around the 1984 LA Olympics. Long story short, I wound up working on the Olympic Arts Festival, transformative. Michael and Frank came into Disney right as the Olympic Arts Festival was ending and they hired a ton of people over from the arts festival, including Tom Schumacher, who's now the, one of my best friends and the president of Disney Theatrical and head of Disney Animation for ages. And um, so many people I worked with on the Olympics went on to Disney careers. The head of the arts festival needed a driver slash assistant. And I was what, 24, 23 years old. And so I took the job. He wound up being named as the president of Euro Disney. Okay, that's in, <laughs> in In that role, I met a guy named Jim Cora, and I just finished actually working on Jim Cora's memoir, which is coming out next year. So I co-wrote Jim's memoir with him. Jim Cora, after a few days of being around me and working with me, said, you're a Disney guy. And I didn't realize at the time what a compliment that is to be referred to, especially by somebody like Jim Cora. Jim Cora went to my boss, Olympic Arts Festival uh, leadership guy, and said, are you hiring this guy onto our project? Because if you aren't, I am. And that was my side door. Oh, wow. I tried the direct forthright approach going through the front. And I, anyway, I worked on the Euro Disney 
project as an employee of Disneyland International for about six months or so, maybe a little longer. And then they were doing relocations to Europe and I, there was no place for me in, in that. So I transferred into Walt Disney Imagineering and I wound up as a coordinator in the graphics department. But it was one of those things, and I think it was, was much more of the organization of the time, still bore so much resemblance to the corridor culture cross-utilization wed of the 60s and 70s. I kept getting pulled out by Tony Baxter because I could do presentations, and he hated doing like the old carousel slideshow of what's the Euro Disney project and how are we going into Europe? So he would send me all the time to do these presentations. And somebody in communications saw me and doing one of these and said, why is this guy a coordinator over in the graphics department? He should be doing this stuff. So I wound up in communications doing first day orientations, management training, presentations. Then my boss at Imagineering was in a fix one day and needed a press release. She had been demanded to get a draft press release done. I remember this vividly. It was for the double helix DNA sculpture at the front of the Wonders of Life Pavilion in Future World at Epcot Center. So I banged out a press release because I'd had a lot of jobs in the past where I had had to, you know, it's great when you have a job where you sort of have to double in brass and do a couple of different things. She came back and stood in the doorway and said, you didn't tell me you were a writer. <laughs> well, I'd never thought of myself as a writer. Right. And that's how that connection happened to get into Disney, to get into Imagineering. And then that press release went to Mickey Steinberg, who was the senior vice president of worldwide operations, I think at the time and to Marty Sklar. So I got noticed by Marty. And as I said earlier, Marty started putting me in front of doing writing stuff, Disney writing stuff, and continued to be a support and a mentor over that part of my career. So I was at Imagineering and Communications, worked for the anti-mame of my career, a woman named Betsy Richmond, who's glorious. We should all dream of having that kind of a boss. I went over and, and I got sent over to the studio to go to a meeting with a group called Corporate Synergy and Special Projects. And they were working on the very nascent ideas of what became the company-wide volunteers program. So it was me representing Imagineering, but it was Doris Smith, who was the board of directors secretary, vice president of community relations for Disneyland, VP of community relations for the corporation and so on talking about this. And it was a very interesting meeting, but I did speak my mind. And as I left the meeting, I thought, gee, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I said too much. And I worried that whole night I didn't sleep because I, I was very opinionated and I sort of flew in the face of some things that were being proposed. Well, I got into work the next morning and the first thing was a note on my desk from Betsy, come see me. And I was like, okay, I uh -oh. did. I, I said the wrong thing and I made somebody mad. So I came in and said, how long do I have? She said, what are you, what are you, 
she said, well, you made quite an impression over there at the studio last night. Wow. Oh my God. No. What did I, Oh my God. Who did I make mad? <laughs> she said, no, actually, um, Linda Warren, the vice president of corporate synergy and special projects called me this morning and asked if she could hire you. Oh, wow. So she said, you did good. Um, they want you over in corporate. And that was, I spent another five years or so in that department, corporate synergy and special projects. So, you know, every step of the way has been somehow blessedly informed by some miracle. And I think that's, that's part of it as I never, ever, I try never to lose my gratitude or lose my perspective about that. Humility and gratitude are great work skills. Um, it's, it's meant a really interesting, I mean, I've met so many interesting people. I've worked with so many fascinating people and, and gotten to be friends with so many terrific people, all because I've gotten to go all over the world because of Walt Disney. I've gotten to do all these great projects because of Walt Disney. You traced the line back on just about everything wonderful that's happened to me in my life. It's Walt's fault. <laughs> you can take the credit, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's that's where it goes. The thing that I always tell fans, though, is please understand that the company and Disney are not the same thing. Because it was a trap I fell into when I was in corporate, and I had an assistant who said, "You know, you can love this company all you want; it's not going to love you back." And I think that was a real shock to my system. But I always tell the fans, it's like. It's like church in a way. Over here in your right hand is, is the Vatican. Over here in your left hand is your church. I don't care what's going on with the Pope and the College of the Cardinals. They can do whatever they want because they have a vested interest in keeping my church occupied and active. So I'll go and sing the hymns and, and you know, uh, share the good news and the fellowship and do all that stuff. Unless you're really into business. Because the Disney company as a business is very fascinating. I'm not. I like the church, you know. I dig the architecture and I, you know, the music's kind of pretty. So um, I stay over there and let them deal with keeping the, the doors open. Because that's, that's why they exist. A lot of people get all caught up in the company, capital C company. It's not where my focus is. The other thing I think, too, is people feel as Disney fans, that they are beholden to become Star Wars fans and Marvel fans. And you don't have to. You can, you can focus your love wherever you want to. And I think it's very odd sometimes because I've had fans who, who have basically said, thank you for giving me permission that I'm not a bad Disney fan because I'm just not into Marvel. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not a bad Disney fan. I'm not all that into Star Wars, but my 11-year-old, my 12-year-old is. And, you know, so we do it and watch it and I enjoy it on a certain level, but, you know, I'm not going to go all mental on it the way I have with Disney. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's sort of how that progression from Imagineering really through the side door into Disneyland International and then sort of a pathway through the company. And then I left the company to go freelance. You know, the short version is because I could, and because my pathway or my growth in the company was, was limited. So that was a choice. And oddly enough, my vice president in corporate synergy at the time, um, Jody Dreyer, 
said, you could go freelance and work all over this company. And she was right. She denies to this day that we ever had this conversation. <laughs> I, I always tell her how inspirational it was, but she said, go. And if it's not working out or you hate it or whatever, you know, you have a home here, come back and we'll figure out something for you to do. She says, I said that. I'm like, yeah, you did say that. I, you were the one who gave me the courage to, to walk out the door. She's like, well, I'm glad if I did that, but I have no memory. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, I think that you have our next question uh, in regards to another book that you have purchased. And yes, well, I have so many of them. I really do. I was checking. I'm like, going, uh-huh. He wrote that. He wrote that. He wrote that. Yeah. So I'm a big <laughs> fan. Thank you. But um, The Art of Disney Costuming, Heroes, Villains, and Spaces Between is such yes. a gorgeous book. What was that experience like? And working with the Disney Archives I've said it before, but I've got my white gloves and I'm ready to assist anyone anytime at the Disney archives. Please take me up on that. <laughs> but what was well, that, that like? That was, well, of course, I, my first trip to the Walt Disney Studios happened when I was about 17. That's another long, boring story. Wow. I had met Eric Larson, one of Walt's nine old men up in Seattle when I was a kid. And he said, come down to the studio. So I think I took about half a day to book my flight and plan a trip. So um, when I was there in, in the high school, uh, Eric took me into the archives, introduced me to Dave Smith and to his associate, Paula Sigmund Lowry, who was in the archives. And as I said, we wound up being lifelong friends and colleagues on many projects, including the museum. So working with the archives is long, long relationship and very second nature. The costuming book came about in a very interesting way because we had just finished doing stuff for the 2017 Expo, D23 Expo. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk and I was talking to Becky Klein, the director of the archives. And she said, oh, we've already decided what our next big exhibit is gonna be for the 2019 Expo. I said, what is it? Costuming, interesting, walked away. <laughs> Jen Eastwood called me a little while later and said, how would you feel about working, collaborating with the archives, doing costuming and doing a book to companion the exhibit? Books take a long time. Hmm. So there we were, it was probably September, October of 2017. And they were talking about an uh, off to press in December of 2018. So that involved not just doing a book, but it had to do with them aggressively putting together what that exhibit was, what it would contain, what was the story that it would tell. So we had several sit downs at round tables and square tables and different tables, sort of pounding out what's the narrative of the exhibit and then really worked to put it together in a narrative form that would work both as an uh, experience of place and something that would companion well with that and accurately with that, but would also be something that somebody who never saw that exhibit in their life could look up and look at and understand. So it was a really unusual project in that sense. It was very fast. It was all very sort of, it was a seat of the pants feeling in a certain way. 
then getting to work individually and collectively with all those great team members on that costume book beyond Becky. Um, there's actually a wonderful video up somewhere on the D23 site of a panel that I did with the group who put the costume exhibit together that tells you the whole story. It's, it's terrific. It was a terrific conversation. But mainly there was six of us, five of us, who did the exhibit and the book. It was interesting to me because the book came and I had expected to be content with it. That it was, it did the job. Well, that worked. But instead I got a book that was so gorgeous because of course the designer on the book was was Welcome Enterprises and, and uh, the Wakabayashi brothers at Welcome are so talented. It was, so it was, had a rich, and the photography. Um, the, yes, <laughs> gorgeous. From Holly at the archives. I think a lot of, I realized at the point of the costume book coming out and seeing some of the reaction to it, I realized once again that, that issue of know your audience because I had, I realized that there was an audience of a certain age and disposition that was really bent out of shape that we didn't get to see the Mickey Mouse Club sweaters for the 373rd time. (laughs) (laughs) And we're really upset that we had modern Disney movies represented so heavily. Once again, it's those modern Disney movies that are the culture of my kids. I mean, They've seen Maleficent and National Treasure and, and Wrinkle in Time. And, and those are the movies that are their youth vernacular. The, the, the criteria for inclusion in that book, though, and well within the exhibit was what's the work? What's the workmanship? What's it was the, amazing. What, Go ahead. Yeah. What, what's, what sets this apart as a piece of storytelling within the film? It was really interesting to note that over the years, I mean, costuming goes back to Snow White. They did costume tests. They were just drawn. Um, costuming has been a part of storytelling with Disney since the beginning. And that was the interesting approach to take is what is happening here that is telling stories or enhancing the characters, giving you those cues to who is this? Um, costuming is a wonderful art in that way because you can look at a character in a costume and know immediately what's going on, who that is. It's like life, I guess, in a lot of ways. And, and all of those aspects are in the book, which was so cool, but I was expecting just a film book, but it's also the costuming of, as you said, the live models for uh, for Snow White and Cinderella and the parks, you know, they don't wear uniforms, they wear costumes That's and true. all of that was included. So that was, yeah. and I had a chance to see the details and immaculate work on the costumes at the D23 Expo. And it was stunning. It was just, I have friends who are costumers and I do theater things and, um, I was able to share pictures and that and certainly told them about the book, which I'm pretty sure they have. And, uh, and it was just amazing. It was just amazing. It was a very satisfying book because it was a departure for me. It was something where I, I have a marginal expertise in that I do a consulting. I have a 
background. I started out acting. I did a lot of theater when I was a kid. I consult for Disney theatrical productions for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, mainly my role there as a consultant is as a sort of on-call Disney geek. Um, <laughs> That's a job. <laughs> it's, it's, actually a, it's actually a really cool job. So, yeah. <laughs> but it was, the costuming book was something different. It, it was almost a palate cleanser in terms of, gee, it's not a Parks book. It's not a filmmaking book. It's not a Walt thing. Of course, there's Walt stories in there, but that's me. It was it was so collaborative as well. I mean, you you have the stories of the various uh, costume designers and all of that. So it's yeah. uh, wonderful work. So thank, thank you. you for thank that. You. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I've, like I said, it's it's something I thought I would be satisfied with, but I'm, instead I'm proud of it. I'm mm-hmm. proud of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you called yourself a, a Disney geek because that is actually in line with our next question, mm-hmm. uh, which is you, as our listeners are, are aware now, are an expert in all things Disney. What's that like? <laughs> do you, do <laughs> oh my you just gosh. get calls all the time asking you to make sure details are correct? Are you like the editor of all things Disney? You know, we just have to know. This is what we aspire to be, so we just want to know what it's truly like. <laughs> it's very odd. Within Disney, capital D Disney, there's almost like a, a constant audition process. You would think after all this time and 40 plus books over 25 years, but the company is so big and so vast and in many ways so disconnected. People have a tendency to discover me as opposed to knowing about me. And once again, because so many people coming in are 20 something, you vary from the people who make me feel ancient by saying, I got Since the World Began when I was nine years old, and it's my favorite book. Um, thanks, kid. Um, <laughs> it's their favorite book. That's what's important. <laughs> to, absolutely. To the people who go, hey, I worked with Jeff 25 years ago. Maybe he's the guy we should ask about that. I've kept my independence in terms of employment because it still enables me to both pick and choose what I do. In some cases, I'll say, I'm not your guy, but I know the guy who is. And it's the same with information. People will say, I need to know this and such. And it's not so much that I know it, like I'm some super brainiac or something, but I know where to find it or I know who to ask. That I think is the great resource. The other thing is understanding how to contextualize things because the company is one that perpetually leans on its past. And I've been trying to get them to recognize the word legacy, not history. History to me is statistical and data-driven and statistics and, and data are fine. But when you're telling something that's legacy driven, you're talking about an idea or a philosophy. And in the context of that, nobody really cares whether Skeleton Dance was released in 1929 or 1930. They can look that up if they need to. It's right there on IMDb. It's got a release date and probably will tell you the theater where it premiered. But do you need to know that in a broader context of telling a story that's about why, once again, why? It's just like the museum. 
Why does this matter? And I think that's what I've been called on most frequently about over the last several years is I'm doing this and such thing. And I don't have the understanding of how that fits into the legacy. And the thing is, the legacy of Disney has got so much breadth and so much strength that unless your project is really cockamamie and doesn't pass the smell test on any level, there are lots of ways to incorporate what you're doing into a legacy idea. Um, and once again, you go back to those pillars. Disney creates things based on so many of those pillar ideas of family, art, music, story, and innovation. So you can flex into those issues. So those are the things I get called. I just, I got called on to review a script for Disney theatrical productions this week. Um, basically because I understand the story so deeply. So I did a review and I wrote a, a fairly short email. It's something I've been consulting with them on actually for probably almost three years now. And it's gone through, I think this was draft seven uh, of this. Vastly different, but once again, because I'm a total super geek out nerd, my knowledge of the fundamentals of that source material are such that I was able to call out a couple of things and say, this needs to be moved away from that because you have two emotional ideas that are mutually negating each other. So it had to do with sort of the placement of two musical numbers that were both fine, but in their adjacency, they were sort of sucking the life out of each other. Those are the kinds of things that, that 35 years of doing this makes your brain so weird that you can do that. Um, the other thing I think it has to do a lot, realizing that you're not, I, I've said this fairly recently several times when people have, have approached me, I, I have no mountains to climb. I have, a, I have myself a lovely legacy. I have a long shelf of books and, uh, you know, Rufus Choate said, uh, books are the only immortality. And so I'm pretty damn immortal at this point. And <laughs> I don't have anything to prove and I don't have anything that I need to be the boss of or in charge of or so being somewhat ego free about this. Everybody has an ego. I still have an ego, but it's within the parameters of understanding. So working consulting with other people and helping them get to success with their idea and not having to own it myself is a pretty, uh, it's in a nice way to, to work. And that's kind of where I live. I love when there's an email or a phone call and somebody says, Hey, I got this thing. And I thought of you. It's also very interesting to see younger iterations of me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, especially as I've gotten older, I spend a lot of time just being accessible and mentoring to young people. I didn't have a strong guiding force when I was early on in my 20s that could help and guide me how to, what to, what not to. And there's a saying, um, be who you needed when you were their age. And 
So a lot of times people are very, Vanessa Hunt was one of those, like I said, 17 years old. And boy, I'll tell you, I think that she would agree that I had to really push her to do the poster art book with Danny Anki, because um, she just didn't see herself in that role. I said, it doesn't matter whether you see yourself, I see you in that role. This is something you can do. So she's gone on and now she's, I think Monorails is what her, technically her third book as a, as a co, co-author and then Mark Davis, of course, would be 850 blank pages without Vanessa on it. So it's really important to hand it back. I think that's one of the great things about the Disney fan community. I was talking to Paul Walski, uh, Monorail's co-author and my designer on the Christmas card book. Yesterday, we were talking about this. And I, we were talking about the fan culture of Disney. And I said, the greatest thing about the fan culture of Disney is that it's a sharing culture. It's not a keeping culture. You know, there are keepers, there are collectors. You have that in any sort of cultural entity that has a fan base. But most of the people that I know who are involved with Disney, either as aficionados or professionals or both, their great joy is, hey, did you hear about? Or, you know, there's going to be a this thing, or do you know what I just found out? (laughs) They're always interested in that. (laughs) There's just, there's the culture of sharing what is going on and sharing information, sharing background, sharing, hey, I read this great book. You really would like this. Um, There's a generosity in the Disney fan community that is, I think, maybe it's not unusual but I think the intensity of that sharing culture is unusual. We all come together from a shared affection for something. And our, I think our culture tends to be very affectionate in that way. Jeff, I think that you were, um, I don't know how you did it, but you were in our minds when we were coming <laughs> up with our pre-interview because uh, I was going to ask you about, and I still will uh, since the world began and, and mentioning it as a legacy question. Uh, and so that was a good tie-in. But then you started talking about fan culture and really Brett's next question, uh, which was <laughs> skipping down a little bit, was labeled Disney fan culture. So I think uh, I'll let mm. him go ahead and and skip and and ask that question uh, of you and then I'll circle back here with the uh, as the world began you cut and paste whatever you want (laughs) you you can cut and paste it into the right order (laughs) that's true that's true well can we talk a little about Disney fan culture Um, you are such a Disney obsessed fan enabler and I mean that in a good way (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What do you think, you spoke about it, about the culture, but what do you think it is about Disney that brings us all together? Is it the storytelling, you know? Um, You know, I always think of Disney stories, I keep thinking of that Anne Frank quote, you know, where she says, you got Anne Frank of all people who says that she still believes that people are innately good. I think there's a part of the Disney culture that perpetuates and reinforces the fact that we are innately good people and celebrates that. The other thing that I have found, you see so many of the Disney stories, I think this is really an important component of them, 
the character we gravitate to is to one degree or another, or for one reason or another, oppressed because of something. And then that hero dominates their oppressor by their use of that thing that they've been oppressed for. You think most basically about Dumbo and his giant ears, and he triumphs over his oppressors by using the very thing that they ridicule him for. And I think you have that in so many of the Disney stories, whether to one degree or another, it's Aladdin because he is a riffraff street rat, but it's the, the heart and the cleverness and the conscience that he gets from that or that is part of him that makes him triumph. I think you find that in a lot of Disney storytelling and a lot of Disney experiences. I think we all strive to be good people. And I think there's a lot of that in Disney. And that I think is why it's a sharing culture. We like to share those things that make us feel, feel good, that feel that we are good, and that the people we gravitate to are also good. Well, Jeff, uh, we're going to start uh, wrapping up here a bit, and I wanted to ask you about your book, uh, Since the World Began. And, and because it is such, it's thought of as such a premier book, it's actually the first I heard uh, of, of you and um, your legacy of books was through other podcasts and other Disney fans talking about this book, Since the World Began. It was done at the 25th anniversary of the Disney part of Walt Disney World. So you might be uh, giving a clue to what my question might be. <laughs> might we expect a volume two at the 50th? Or is there any other projects that you're able to talk to us about that you've been working on? I wish that there was a new, I've pitched a new since the world began five times now, every five years since the 25th. Uh, there is a 50th anniversary book being done, but not by me. And it's not a since the world began. It is, I believe it's Steve Vagnini, Kevin Kern and Tim O'Day are collaborating on that. Um, Since the World Began was sort of the first big Disney book for me. Oh my God, I was terrified. Intimidated, frightened beyond words, insecure as all get out. But uh, clearly I took all that in stride and prevailed. I've had more people say what an important book it was to their childhood, making me feel like a grandpa. Um, you were a mere child when you wrote it child. I, was a, I was indeed a child um, what a send off though and to tell you the truth once again can't credit enough my friend Wendy Lefcon for trusting that I could do it um, I'm still to this day grateful about that what's interesting though in terms of coming full circle is I mentioned earlier I just finished the manuscript of the memoir of Jim Cora. Jim Cora, of course, Disney legend, retired as chairman of Disneyland International and is really the guy who exported the Disney parks to Japan and Europe. Jim was the guy that was plucked from uh, Disneyland to lead up the team developing Tokyo Disneyland 
And he is the guy who plucked me out of obscurity saying, you're a Disney guy and set me on my career path. And we've remained friends all these, this time. Jim's story, he came to me some time ago and said, I want to do a book. And so I just really helped him do that. What I realized as we were doing all the interviews for the book was Jim has a really fascinating multi-layered story that's a very Disney story. So not only does it cover the ground of how all these international parks came to be, which isn't ground very often trod, you know, it also is an interesting story of an American dream, the... uh, sort of an immigrant family. Jim, unusual because he's Lebanese-American, so he was a brown guy in a very white Disney of the 1950s. His ascent through Disney is its own interesting story, and how that ties to his background in the California culture that he grew up in, Uh, the car culture of the 50s, and his background in Catholicism, which has relationship to to Disney, it's a fascinating story. And uh, I think that fans and, and, and fans of Disney will really understand it and appreciate it, but it hits so many layers. That's really the big project, the one that's coming up next uh, now that our monorails release date has, has come and gone. That's wonderful. Vanessa, you have some rapid fire questions for yeah, us. Yeah, some, some fun, quick questions we think you'll enjoy. Um, first question is, what is your favorite Disney animated film? And if you can't think of just one, we will take more than one answer. I think Bambi. Bambi. Hmm. I think Bambi okay. is really, Bambi just, there's so much going on in Bambi that I love. I an underrated Disney animated film that I love very much is Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. Real, I really like Treasure Planet. So, yeah. Excellent. Uh, what is your favorite Disney park attraction? Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> we hear that I'm, one a lot, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the e-ticket guy. I like pirates. I like mansion. I like small world. Same. Oh, those are my favorites too. (laughs) And then finally, what is your favorite uh, Disney park snack? You know, I'm awfully fond of the, I used to be fond of the apple fritters at the uh, market cafe, the little walk-up window over there Mm -hmm. in New Orleans Square. But they have beignets now that are pretty darn good. Mm. Oh, um, land beignet, yes. If I yes. was if I was pushed on something that I don't really see as a snack but more of a meal, I always have a weakness for the corn dog at the Main Street wagon by the Plaza Inn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love me some corn dog. Yep. Excellent. We as a that quick follow up to that, we have a we have an ongoing feud between Brett and Vanessa <laughs> as to Uh-oh. the the relevancy and whether or not the Disney turkey leg should exist. Are you <laughs> are you pro turkey leg or anti turkey leg? I will step out of my Disney cultural uh, role to just say that as a person. I think people wander around the park eating a bird's leg is so disgusting. Oh, so, 
I oh. Vanessa, I'm so sorry that Craig had to ask that question. I just talk I, about enabling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just I just find it sloppy and gross. I just I don't you know what? If you want to do that and like maybe you know, take it into the to the corner and eat that, but <laughs> well, now you can't walk around a, with the turkey leg presently, so that's a, that's just a person. That's a personal gross out level. That has nothing sure. to do with Disney. Yeah. I don't eat churros, but I'm not going to deny the both the Disney relevance and that people love them. So right, you just allowed for Brett to hold that over Vanessa for at least <laughs> the next couple of months. For, okay, so, I, but Brett has I, our I Brett have, has no our problem. final question. I have no problem being an instigator. It keeps, <laughs> perfect, perfect. It, keeps oh, it keeps the no no that would be craig that was craig instigating that we've been very polite in how we asked that question and then craig is the one who put it you know anyway. it keeps the conversation a lot <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well i i guess well my question is disney is about disney magic how yeah. do you define disney magic have you had any of those uh disney magic moments that you'd like to share just realize that as a, I realized that more and more as a parent, I have three boys. They're now growing up way too fast, 15, 13, and 12. And I realized that a lot of what makes Disney magic to me is a lot of what I try to do as a parent, which is to provide security and consistency and safety. And I know that sounds really somewhat clinical when you're talking about magic. The other thing that I try to provide to my children is a sense of wonder to stimulate their curiosity and to surprise them. So I think that do the notions of parenting inform Disney or did Disney inform my notions of parenting? I'm not sure, but those to me are the key elements that are magical about Disney. People can duplicate so much of the mechanics of what Disney does, but there is something about the culture of reassurance that's contained. And I think it goes back to that idea that people are innately good. You're going to be okay. Not only are you going to be okay, but chances are you'll win. I think those are all good ideas, especially now. Especially now, indeed. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, we really cannot thank you enough for the amount of joy that you've brought to us, not only through this interview, but just through your, just so many books and your work in Imagineering and your stories that you continue to tell. It's just been incredible to get to talk to you today. And we are so grateful for your time. The pleasure was mine. Anytime you want to talk, God knows I can talk. Oh my gosh, see? Yeah. We will take you up up on that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, there are those people that you get to speak to in life that you know just have so much passion running through their entire being. And Jeff Curdy is one of those individuals. You can tell he loves the Walt Disney Company. He loves Walt Disney and his history. Um, And he's had some tremendous experiences that I'm sure he could only have dreamed of as a child because of his love and his passion for Walt Disney. Your thoughts on the overall interview, Vanessa? 
I feel like I kind of went to a therapist in a way, like he's able to articulate thoughts that I'm not able to verbalize, uh, especially watching the Sherman brother documentary. He knew exactly how I was feeling, even though I, I, I never was able to say, yeah, actually that is why I left the movie feeling this way. And just his ability to provide context and different perspectives of those who knew Walt, um, the stories of him uh, that he told of Walt's daughter and her perspective. It, it was just, it was a great story. It was an interesting take. And I'm just so glad we have people like Jeff out there um, who can uh, kind of archive this information in their mind and share it with us and also be so encouraging when they, when they do talk to us. I definitely feel like um, there's like a, a mentorship kind of energy with him. Like he's just so gracious in talking with us. I just really had a good time listening to him. Yeah, well, he talked about Vanessa's story, the 17-year-old right. clerk and how uh, they encouraged her to start writing books. And now she's on her third book for Disney Publishing. Just uh, incredible the amount of, you know, what's funny is the there's one thread that I think ties all of these interviews that we've had the opportunity to do together. And that's that these people truly appear genuinely humble. And uh, there's a lot of humility that goes through the Walt Disney Company. They are truly on top of the world in many ways. And uh, Jeff is another prime example of someone that just wants to give and give and give that credit without taking too much of it himself, even though I think a lot of it is deserved coming his way because he has had so many prolific pieces of work that we will enjoy. As he said, books are immortal. And so in that way, he's very immortal, right? Uh, Brett, your thoughts on the interview? Ah, well, again, wow. I learned so much about overall. I learned uh, so much about the Walt Disney Family Museum and the costuming book that, uh, that came out a couple of years ago. And, and, oh, that's why I have to kind of wrap it up because, um, because the new book, the monorail book is coming via UPS today. And that's what I'm doing right now. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to wait patiently at the door for the UPS uh, carrier deliverer and I get the book and then I'm going to be reading it tonight. How about that? So let's that's wrap it up. That sounds that's perfect. Fun. <laughs> that's perfect. And I should say that that book uh, is just released, just hot off the presses. It was released on September 15th and you can find that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere the books are sold. And it uh, truly looks like such a great piece. I can't wait to be able to see it myself. Uh, to borrow well. it? <laughs> and you can find so many of his other books. If you have whatever interest that you may have, you can find a book on that interest in that subject, whether that's costuming or maybe particular art styles and how Disney does animation. Uh, I love the theme park books. So things like this monorail book or Since the World Began, those are right up my alley. Uh, he has a book on Imagineering as well, which is kind of fun because we talked to Tom Morris and he's also writing a book on Imagineering. It's cool that these people are putting so much time and effort to allowing us to relive those memories and to make sure that those people remain with us, those people that create and bring the magic to us in so many ways. So Jeff, if you're listening back to this, thank you so much. Uh, we will certainly take you up on your offer of coming on again. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful interview. Uh, and thank you. Any final thoughts, Brett? I've got to go get my book. <laughs> <laughs> and Vanessa? 
I just like really want to get the monorail book and have Bob Gurr read it to me at bedtime or maybe <laughs> Jeff and just like just or even just to call Jeff and be like, tell me another story, Jeff. <laughs> the weather's starting to turn, right? So I imagine um, Bob Gurr kind of in like full flannel pajamas, sitting down by the fire, yeah. reading about the monorail. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. This is exactly. my dream. We, I'm going to send him a, a DM on the gram and see if I can make this happen for me we need to we need to to pitch this as like a virtual fundraising event or something so jeff uh your people get in touch with our people we'll make this happen you know we'll 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 definitely be there um but thank you again uh for listening along you of course can find us on all of our social media platforms uh beyond the mouse pod on instagram also beyond the mouse podcast on facebook continue to like and share. And also please uh, continue to tell others about us and make sure that you're subscribed to the show as well. We have some truly wonderful interviews to go back and listen to. Might be a great time to go back and listen to that Bob Gurr interview, especially because the monorail book that Jeff wrote has just become published and just become available for all of us to consume. Of course, we're a member of the Front Row Network as well. So you can find them on all social media platforms, as well as Twitter. You can find them Front Row Reviews with a Z. You can also find us on nprillinois.org as well and find all of our content there. We have some really fun episodes coming your way for October and getting into the Halloween spirit because there's almost no better time to be a Disney fan than to be a Disney fan at Halloween. And we can't wait to bring those to you every single Friday. But that's it for us today. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Oh, we're not bantering. Okay, Do you want me to not. banter? Guys? Yes, I'm, like going, I'm just oh, like going, Bob Gurr in, 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 in flannel pajamas? Okay. I'm sending Bob a message right now. Dear Bob, <laughs> what up? Read me this book. Please. <laughs> Please wear pajamas. Make sure they are flannel. We know that Bob Gurr can screen share. Yes, we do. He could totally screen share this book and then read it to me. Oh, it's a dream come true. It is. Monorail.